I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. My name is Rohan Seth, and uh, towards the end of every year, Nitin Manoj and I try to do a recap of all the books that we've read. Working at a think tank, it's one of the small pleasures of the professional life. So, if you enjoyed the last episode, uh, we are doing a three-part series on this is our second one. Please do consider signing up for our courses in uh, public policy. We've got courses in technology policy, health and life sciences, and a postgraduate course that you might be interested in, dear listener. So, we will put links. to more about the courses in the show notes below having said that uh, welcome back manoj and nitin to all things policy great to have you here again good to be back rohan to talk to you about books and data hi rohan <laughs> yeah the two come hand in hand as far as i go so i think this time around we can sort of carry on from where we left off last time because nitin you had some great book recommendations for all of us from some of the smartest people you know as you said so i think it's good to pick off right where we left off and talk about um, some fiction from last time and then yeah i think uh, that's a good good point to start because you know fiction gets left out in many of our conversations because you know we tend to focus more on non fiction and serious stuff and pretend to be more serious than we ought to be uh, but in fiction i think there's there's a lot which is interesting you know so when i spoke to uh, my intelligent learned friends and i asked them uh, book recommendations they said fiction or non fiction i said either doesn't really matter and uh, which year did you re- should it have been published i said doesn't matter when it was published as long as something which you read last year or read this year and you found it interesting so here goes David Malone, uh, who is a very, very insightful scholar of international relations and a lot of other things besides, is right now the rector of the United Nations University in Tokyo. Recommended the Alexandra Quartet by Lawrence Dull. Right, this is the story of Alexandria over the last hundred um, years, and uh, David uh, recommended it because he grew up in Alexandria for a period of time, and he said this was childhood reading for him. and he went through the four books in the quartet uh, all over again and he could appreciate the fictional universe in which these uh, you know these books were set and it linked uh, everything to the ancient city of alexandria and i i like uh, books which connect our current to our past you know because uh, there is something about revisiting books which you read uh, in the past and revisiting books which you read in the past which are about revisiting the past it's a sort of a recursive thing i like that rajesh kasturi rangan said uh, the legend of the condor heroes which is a popular uh, non popular fiction which is sold in china i suppose manoj will have something to say about it uh, set in a mythical fantasy you know, chinese universe with kung fu heroes martial arts and so on and this is a book which i actually stole from my daughter she was reading it and i said hey look uh, this tower looks interesting and let me just sort of read it and i was hooked uh, uh, into the in, you know it's almost like a indian book you know it could very well have been an indian uh, long epic story right but it's it's written by uh, jin yong and translated by louis cha uh, rear admiral sudarshan shrikhande to me is one of the most thoughtful 
insightful scholars of maritime strategy, military history, and his, you know, those of us who have been fortunate to attend his lectures on the history of the Peloponnesian War, we know that this man is probably India's authority on ancient Greek strategy. And uh, so when I asked him, his book, not surprisingly, was something which had not heard of before. It's fiction. It's called Once an Eagle by Anton Myrer. It's about being an officer. In fact, it's almost again like a Hindi film. You know, there are two kinds of guys who go into the U.S. Armed Forces in the 50s. Uh, one is a patrician elite kid. The other is a middle-class kid who enters the armed forces. And this is a story of their lives. He said it's 1,300 pages uh, and it's considered cult reading in the U.S. Armed Forces. I have a copy of that book, which I'm currently using it as a self-defense mechanism uh, in, my, in my study. But I intend to read it in 2022. My good friend Sorin Dayton in the United States recommends uh, Ken Liu's uh, The Dandelion uh, Dynasty. Ken Liu, for those of you who don't know, is a guy who translated Xin Liu's uh, The Three-Body Problem. And he's a great writer in his own right. I've enjoyed many of his books, short stories especially. The Dandelion uh, Dynasty is something which I haven't explored yet and I do intend to pick up. The final book of fiction which was recommended to me by Professor Shumit Ganguly, Indiana University, well-known professor of international relations, is Eric Maria Remarque's uh, A Time to Love and A Time to Die. And I didn't know about this book. Although I, if I were to mention the other book, uh, I think a lot of us are familiar with, you know, it's All Quiet on the Western Front. It's the same author who wrote All Quiet on the Western Front, which became a movie. Uh, and this is about the soldier who returns back from the front to his hometown to pick up the pieces of his life. And Shumit says, this is even more moving and more insightful than his All Quiet on the Western Front. And I do look forward to reading it. This goes on to my fiction reading list. And I suppose there's enough here to keep me occupied for uh, almost half a year or more. Uh, I mean, the Alexandra portrait itself probably will keep me occupied for a few months. But I want to end my piece today by, uh, my fiction piece today by talking about two books I read this year, fiction. Maxwell's Demon. Okay. I like this kind of genre of uh, writing called weird fiction, weird fantasy, you know, Mobius strip kind of uh, work. And Maxwell's Demon by Stephen Hall is really nice. I listened to the audiobook narrated by Pierce Hampton, which is brilliant. You know, I just enjoyed every moment of it. The other book which I would recommend <laughs> is this book called The War. Okay. V O R R H. The War by Brian Catling. Oh, this is, it's hard to describe the genre. It's set in some semi African context. Not sure which year it was it's set in, probably a hundred years ago. There's a bit of steampunk in this, but it's also about mysterious things which happen, uh, robots made of bakelite and so on. Uh, I really can't explain what uh, genre it is, but uh, <laughs> it's part of a trilogy. So the second and the third books are already out, and I do want to read them. But for those of you who are interested for some really weird stuff, I would go with the war. Right. I think um, the part where you mentioned that you use books as a self-defense mechanism is of profound interest to me because um, that's a use case I had not considered before, Nitin. But moving on, I think um, 
I think fiction's very underrated in the kind of stuff that we talk about here, especially in this podcast and on an annual basis. Some of my favorite fiction reads have been P.G. Woodhouse. It's um, P.G. Woodhouse himself as an author I didn't really get when I was a kid, but now I'm able to appreciate the sentence structure. So that's one thing I would recommend to people who are listening. But moving on from fiction, um, I think... Um, as I said in the previous episode, we've got a published author here with us today. And uh, while we read a lot of books, he's actually written one, something that I did encounter at uh, Lucknow Airport. So, uh, Manoj, over to you. Tell us something about your books uh, that you read. Thanks, Ron. So, uh, before I get on to sort of some of the nonfiction stuff, because I largely read nonfiction, I sort of rarely read fiction. My fiction reading is essentially recommendations uh, by my sister. But there was one book that I did read this year, which was a fiction book, which is uh, a book called uh, Death, A Life by George Pendel. It's an old book. It's a 2008 publication, if I'm correct. And that's the kind of fiction that I generally tend to enjoy, which is uh, slightly absurd, has a lot of uh, religious iconography, sometimes apocalyptic fiction. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that I generally enjoy. I guess it has something to do with growing up uh, in the 80s, reading a lot of conspiracy theories. It still stays with me. Uh, so I do recommend that for anybody who's interested. It's a funny take on the human condition by creating a character called Death and creating sort of a fictional life for this character of Death, uh, all based within sort of uh, Christian or Catholic sort of iconography. There are two other books that I would sort of also talk about before I get to the other nonfiction. These are nonfiction, but these are books that I've uh, returned to after having read again, just because, uh, you know, Something happened, I wanted to go back to the subject. And I've just, when I've gone back to them, I've sort of felt that there is so much uh, linkage to what's happening in the world today. Um, first is this book called uh, The Origin of Satan by uh, Elaine Pagels. Uh, she's a theologian. And uh, it's a fascinating account of the idea of evil and the concept of Satan as evil and how it emerges from essentially the political other through sort of uh, ancient history. And obviously she looks at, you know, life in the Middle East and uh, Israel at that point of time. And she talks about, uh, so it's, it's a fascinating story in terms of how she's constructed, how the notion of evil in Satan and the devil essentially is about the political other. And I think it sort of has so much resonance to the times that we live in. You know, uh, I, I remember I first sort of picked up this book uh, after the 9-11 terror attacks and, you know, George Bush's framing of the world as us versus them. And I thought it was fascinating then, and I thought it's even relevant today. The other sort of book in similar vein that I've uh, again gone back to and uh, going through again is uh, Zealot by Reza Aslan. Again, I think it's a really, really engaging read. He, the way he's constructed the story of the historical Jesus, I think just fascinating read about how politics blends with religion and how that can sustain over a period of time. So again, that's sort of my sort of slightly out of the ordinary read. Other than that, I spent the bulk of the year essentially reading about China. And that's partly because there have been so many fantastic books that have come out this year on China and about so many different sort of themes, right? It, it, this year was a big year for Chinese history. And for anybody who wants to get a look at sort of the intricacies of the party's history over the past 100 years, the Communist Party's history, there's a book by Tony Satch called uh, From Rebel to Ruler. It's a really fact book, but it's a really good book, really engaging read on the minor details of how the Communist Party has evolved. It's the kind of book that I think this year, given history and the hundredth, the centenary was a big deal, is really, really relevant. There's another book by Joseph Hugh Smith talking about, uh, it's titled Rethinking Chinese Politics. Again, 
super relevant because it gives you a detailed look at the evolution of elite politics within the party, which again is extremely relevant given that next year you're going to see the 20th party Congress and uh, potentially Xi Jinping taking the position of general secretary for the third time. Another fascinating book around elite politics, but far less academic and far more sort of real world based is uh, David Shum's Red Roulette. Again, incredible look at corruption, the sort of high flying lifestyle, the link between capitalism and the Communist Party and how that sort of evolves. Uh, and of, of course, told by an individual who was an insider and whose wife currently is obviously in Beijing and they're separated because of her being detained. So again, a fascinating look at the nature of corruption and his sort of views on Xi Jinping, particularly not being a bright individual uh, and his views on Wang Qishan, who's uh, close to Xi Jinping uh, and China's vice president. Again, extremely interesting look at what is the black box of Chinese elite politics. Um, in terms of, uh, there have been lots of sort of Indian authors who've done some fascinating work, a lot of them former ambassadors. So there have been two books by Ambassador Vijay Gokhale, looking back uh, at the Tiananmen Square incident and also looking back uh, at China's diplomacy with India, his book, The Long Game, which I think is a must read for anybody trying to understand what have been the issues between India and China and how, from a practitioner's lens, what have been the failings of Indian diplomacy and what have been the successes of Indian diplomacy. And I think he does a really unsentimental job of looking at that and trying to identify some key themes of how the Chinese negotiate. Ambassador Shivshankar Menon's book on India and Asian geopolitics. I mean, the title is India and Asian geopolitics, but China sort of looms large in that book. To me, that's one of those, one of the best books that you can read in the year if you just want to, if you're even beginning to get a sense of how history has shaped the present moment in Asia. One of the books that I thought was really fascinating, again, uh, by a former ambassador was the book by Ambassador Nirupama Rao uh, called The Fractured Himalaya. It was among the two books on the issue of India, China and Tibet that came out this year. And I thought it was a really well-written book, which uh, was an unsentimental, critical take, not just from a practitioner's lens, but also from a scholar and analyst lens. And she looks at the relationship between India and China through the first decade and a bit leading up to the 1962 war. Uh, and for anybody who wants to understand the different uh, facets that a policymaker has to keep in mind in making decisions in that sort of an environment, uh, I think this is a great book to look at. At the same time, there's another book by A.S. Bhaseen titled India, China and Tibet. Again, a really good book, but a very different uh, look at the same period of history uh, between India and China and Tibet. A much more critical book, but a book about the failure of Indian diplomacy. But the great sort of quality of that book is that it relies on archival material, which is, uh, you know, a rare thing nowadays. Uh, and I would recommend for anybody to get a full picture of the complexities of that period. These are two really good books to look at. Uh, and again, Really Manoj, I, I would I would recommend a third uh, one of these things. It's not very archival. It's not very uh, deep historical. It's very contemporary. It's written by this uh, character called Manoj Kevalramani. The book is called The Smokeless War, right? And it's about China's response to the pandemic and uh, connecting that to deeper issues of China's trajectory and uh, geopolitical agenda. Do you want to say anything about that book? Yeah, I think it's one of the best books on China in this year. <laughs> Uh, and like somebody had told me while I was reading through one of the Goodreads review, oh my God, he's got so many footnotes. It looks like a textbook, but I should tell you, it's a very engaging read. Uh, I mean, basically what I've tried to do in that book is that I've tried to talk about, like Nathan said, China's response uh, to the pandemic. And I've again relied on predominantly 
Chinese language materials, you know, arguments by Chinese diplomats, Chinese uh, policymakers, uh, Xi Jinping and his comments, uh, to try and carve out a sense of how uh, Beijing views the world, how this current administration views the world, where it sees its own place in the world. And I think a lot of, uh, I mean, my hope from the book is, and I, at least for this year, I think I can see that largely what I've written stands, stands to scrutiny is that, you know, the kind of tensions that you're likely to see between China and the West, uh, China and India, are likely to continue, you know, as far as uh, and as long as uh, Xi Jinping remains in power. But even after Xi Jinping exits the stage, whenever that may be, and that's because there's a certain sense of Chinese manifest destiny, of uh, the role of the party, uh, an ideological confrontation that the world is entering into, that is becoming internalized in that system. And that, that means that, you know, just simply a leadership change will not uh, make a huge difference. So that's the sort of broad point that that's a broad takeaway from the work that I did. But yeah, thanks so much for mentioning that. I, I think there is a true story that I would like to add. Um, I was at the Lucknow airport recently. And so the relay store there had um, the bestsellers from the top thought leaders and so on. So it was Obama's book, um, Veer Sangvi's book, and then Manoj's book. So I think without any sort of ulterior motive, I would highly recommend this book because um, he's just in that category of uh, thinkers. And um, it's a pleasure to, to hear what he has to say. But that very humble plug aside from uh, from Manoj's uh, book, let's uh, let's take a quick commercial break and when we come back, we'll we'll have more book recommendations for you, dear listener. Hi, welcome back to All Things Policy. I'm here talking with Manoj and Nitin about um, the books that we came across in 2021. Uh, Manoj, we left the conversation at your China reading list. Let's pick it up from there and then we'll move on. Right, so the last book that I want to talk about uh, in my China reading list, and there are many more, I'm happy to share them in the show notes, but the last book that I want to talk about is, uh, it's a collection of uh, essays by uh, Mao Zedong. Again, like I said, I went back to history this year, and I thought reading two of his essays on practice and on contradiction was really, really good because so much of Chinese language material and discourse this year uh, was about uh, drawing from Maoist hot and again, fascinating in terms of how malleable some of this stuff is and how different, how, how we tend to think of all of this stuff as a rigid ideology. But when you actually read through it, there are so many points that one can pick up and, you know, that can, one can make their argument by relying on that thought. And I think to me, going back to that history and going back to those arguments was important to try and understand how the current leadership is trying to use language and thought of the past. Uh, to try and shape present policies and to draw some degree of legitimacy for present direction. So I do recommend people uh, go back and look at some of this stuff. Uh, it's far more, uh, it's turgid, it can be dry, but you know, if you get a taste for it, it can be really, really fun also. Yeah. Hey, on this, I just want to make a meta uh, book recommendation. You know, I read two interesting takes by US analysts on China, right? And they come from, you know, both sides of the US political spectrum. The Strategy of Denial by Elbridge Colby. He's a Republican conservative, talks about China. And uh, The Long Game by Rush Doshi. He's a Democrat, I think part of the current Biden-Harris administration. And he comes, uh, also he talks about China. What is interesting is there is remarkable convergence in the broad way the United States, the important people in the United States look at China. You know, Now I think they see that a confrontation, contest, 
with China is inevitable. And the soft view that they had that, you know, dealing with China will, in, in a, you know, bringing China into a international system of free trade, liberal democracy will take the, the sharpness out of uh, China. I think that's been proven to be wrong, right? So, so in, in a way, it's a overturning of the Clintonian consensus of the 1990s. Except Wall Street in the US uh, and probably Silicon Valley to some extent in the US, I think the overall US system sees China as an adversary. If not, I mean, if adversary is too strong a word, probably they see them as a competitor, strategic competitor with whom they are in a, in contest, you know. So that's, that's a good meta reading of the US I got. I would add to that uh, Ryan Haas's book, uh, Stronger, and he's been somebody who's been affiliated with previous U.S. administrations. I think he was part of the Obama administration also. I think his book is also, uh, I, I, like you said, those two books talk about the sort of disillusionment uh, with engagement with China, whereas Ryan Haas's book tries to frame a potential pathway for engagement, which is, I think, something what the current Biden administration is also trying to figure out what's the best sort of balance between confrontation and engagement. And I think Ryan Haas's book is a good way to look at what the kind of discourse is on that. Moving on from strategic and geopolitical books that we've read, um, let's move on to non-fiction a little bit. Um, so, Nitin, would you like to start up with a non-fiction roundup? Yeah, um, uh, thanks, Rohan. You know, non-fiction is, I've got a huge list about my own and uh, those of my friends. Let me start with what my friends recommended and then maybe Manoj can jump in if he has any and then I'll end with one of my own, which I think is the book to read, right? Uh, Amit Verma, the person of the Seen and the Unseen podcast, a good friend, a stronger libertarian than I probably uh, can be, recommended this beautiful book called Wanderers, Kings and Merchants, The Story of India Through Its Languages. And he said it opened his eyes to how languages of the present can reveal so much about events in the distant past and how all languages are liberalism brought to life. And I really think so. You know, the, a, a polyglot, by definition, is a pluralist because you, you see that there are so many different languages. Each language brings a package of values, metaphors, stories, and ways of life. And a polyglot or a person who speaks many languages and understands many languages can appreciate the beauty of all of these. So Amit's recommendation is really nice. I look forward to reading. I have the book, but I haven't uh, you know, started on it yet. I look forward to reading it. Again, uh, Admiral Srikhande, you know, comes back to war and other things. And his book on the Second World Wars, how global conflict, uh, I think it was how global conflict was fought and won or won and fought, something like that, by Victor Davis Hanson, I think is a great read, especially because we are seeing changes in the you know global balance with Russia acting again, Europe becoming an important space for geopolitical contestation. So understanding the Second World Wars, how that happened, and the Cold War, which... Uh, Lord Arne Osted is a book which I'm reading about the Cold War, which which I think together make a very nice uh, set of books to read. They're very long books to read, but I think they're important books to read. On uh, values, I had Soren Dayton talking about Democracy for Realists by Arkin and Bartels and Liberalism, Life of an Idea by Edmund Fawcett. Uh, I think these are very important reminders for those of us who are liberal Democrats who believe in Republican ideas, who believe in constitutionalism, to read about the strengths and the weaknesses of these ideas, right? Soren's uh, recommendations are really important. They are not really new books, but which came out in the past few years, but tell us where the fault lines are. On a more optimistic note, 
I would look at Mohit Satyanan's recommendation, which is Matt Ridley's How Innovation Works, as a beautiful book to read. You know, I've read part of it, not entirely, but it's, you know, talking about the connection of innovation and the ecosystem and the values that the ecosystem ought to have. You know, it's really about you need you need free societies for innovation to work. You need individualism for innovation to work because, you know, pursuit of innovation, pursuit of truth and science often requires you to go against social consensus. And if you don't have societies which prize the individual, which prize departure from the social consensus, it's very hard for you to have and you know a really innovative ecosystem and this i suppose is the big challenge for china you can say that china has a different view of the world it prizes the you know society and the community above the individual it prizes uh, consensus and so on but the flip side of that argument is that when individuals prioritize social consensus and say things which society wants to hear and the society hears what it wants to hear you can't do different things and when you can't do different things you can't innovate and when you can't innovate you can't you know create an innovation economy so matt ridley's book at that fundamental thing is very important it connects uh, a lot of what we talk about in uh, politics political science international relations uh, and public policy to a different area which at least those of us who are in bangalore are you know used to which is the innovation economy and it tells people who are in, in the innovation space that the ecosystem which they work in is important for their success. Free societies, free thinking societies, liberal democracies are extremely important to sustain innovation. I'll end there and let's listen to Manoj and uh, his books before I come back because I have a book of the year which I'll talk about at the end. Hey, so I think that uh, some of this, uh, I mean, I, I just wanted to add my voice to uh, supporting Amit Verma's work because I think a lot of my reading list beyond the sort of China stuff that I read comes from uh, his podcast. Uh, and I think it's fascinating that he brings all that. I, I always find it amazing how he brings such diversity to what he covers. Um, but two of the books, again, uh, that I picked up after essentially listening to Amit's podcast were uh, by uh, Pradeep Chibber, uh, Ideology and Identity, The Changing Party Systems of India. I think, again, he does a great job of sort of, you know, putting together the different sort of, he characterizes Indian political evolution till, till as of today into four different stages and four different party systems, essentially looking at the role of the Congress uh, party in that. Uh, and I think it's a great sort of way to just understand what happened over the last 70 odd years, uh, such a complex sort of evolution, but very simply put together. Also, uh, Jugal Bandi by Vina Sitapati, uh, Again, uh, really, really interesting book, very well-written book, which talks about the evolution of the BJP. Again, so this is my sort of little effort in trying to understand what's been happening all around us. And I, I would really recommend that people uh, go and pick up uh, these two books. There are a bunch of others that are sort of lying, uh, which I haven't yet started, uh, so I don't talk about them. But yeah, but that's where I would sort of leave it at. Hey, Nitin, so we should um, now talk about your book of the year. and uh, yeah. Your book of the year. Yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And fanfare. The book of the year, I would say, is Rutger Bragman's Humankind uh, Hopeful History. Now, this is an interesting book, right? It's a book which, from the cover down to the last page, injects optimism, right? Obviously, the author has written a book uh, called uh, Utopia for Realists. So this is probably a part of this. I haven't read uh, Utopia for Realists. But Humankind a Hopeful History is really nice because it's hopeful. It 
tells you, uh, it identifies uh, a lot of the bad things which are happening in the world today. And it tells you how to fix that problem. You know, that's what I like about the book, right? Because so many of the other books that we read are restatements of the problem, uh, reframings of the problem, which are good, very important for us to know. But how do you get out of the mess? And Bregman is probably one of the only books which has a good take on it. Now, I must qualify this by saying it's almost paradoxical because I read every single chapter and argument in the book. And I find that the arguments are not strong enough. You know, he overstates the case of almost every single argument that he makes in the book. Right? And sometimes I would think it's a little uh, selective in terms of choice of uh, data. And I mean, he, he does the same things that he accuses his adversaries of doing. So there are flaws in that book, according to me. But the overall argument still makes sense. Because, you know, the way you're going to be tackling the world as it is now, the problems that is now can only be done with some amount of hope, some amount of fiction, some amount of make-believe, some amount of take my word for it, and then move on, right? Because uh, hope is not a policy, as George Schultz said, but hope is a very, very important strategy to get things done. Because if people are not hopeful, if you don't have an optimistic outlook, you're not going to be solving the problem, right? You might just hide under the chair, hide under the table and said, look, the world is going to the dogs. Let me just hide under the table. So I won't spoil the suspense by talking about uh, the specific arguments in the book or where they are specious. I, I, I would just leave this to the reader uh, and to the listener to discover. But Humankind, A Hopeful History is my book of the year. At the Bangalore Lit Fest recently, I found that it's available in a Marathi and a Malayalam translation also. So I'm glad that there are, uh, you know, Indian language translations of this book. Uh, and I really wish everybody reads it. You can read it pretty easily. Even if you pick it up today, you can, you know, finish it by the end of the year. And I think it will be a fantastic way to finish 2021. Nitin, that's fascinating. I also had a book that I thought I should talk about as my final uh, contribution. This is a book that I have read just about every day this year. It's called Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. My kids made me read it every day this year. And I, what I've learned from it is don't eat too much honey. You'll get stuck indoors and you'll need a lot of time to get out of there. Manoj, you have opened my eyes. <laughs> On that exceptional note, uh, I think <laughs> we should end this uh, episode and see you guys in, um, in let's say, a week or so when we record our final episode of the series. Please keep in mind that we won't have any episodes for the 30th and 31st of December for New Year's Eve and looking forward to seeing all of you next year. Thanks for listening in to All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website, takshashila.org.in.